Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tej Talks. On today's show, we have Kazim. Now, we talk about quite a few different strategies, primarily for investing in London. We look at converting you know, flats into other types of flats, which add a significant amount of value. We look at new builds and we look at something he really loves doing, which is conversions. Now we look at one of his projects, which was a flat conversion, uh, which generated, I believe, over £350,000 profit from one deal. And the majority of it was investor funded. But we talk about how you can potentially start investing in a place like London or a place where there is a uh, a high barrier to entry financially and the kind of things you need to be looking out for in houses if you want to convert them into flats or the things you should be looking out for in flats if you want to convert them into different types. So some big profit in here, but really some big, big learnings. I really like Kazim's approach and attitude. Uh, and we also share some similar beliefs around bridging finance, which we definitely touch on the philosophy of bridging, perhaps you could call it. But for me, this is so, so interesting, especially if you, you know, you're, you're doing that, you're in that part of, you know, your journey where you're like, ah, oh, do I go north? Do I stay in the south? Oh, I live in London. I, you know, how, what do I do? I think this may change your mind a little bit and may shift your perception. But either way, loads of learning. A few people have been asking me if I do mentoring. I do. I'm very selective. I don't do it with many people. I also have my e-learning, which is the kind of deep educational aspect, which I recommend doing first. A lot of people get confused between education and mentoring. Um, and I think there's a big difference between the two. Look, whatever you're interested in, send me a DM on Instagram. Let me see if I can help. Tej.talks. Kazim, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me on. You know, I think I feel like you're quite new to, to social media and Instagram, and that's something we'll talk about, because I only kind of, I suppose, came across you, I don't know, maybe like a month or two ago. And yeah, I really liked what you were posting, how you were posting it, and the kind of how upfront you were as well about certain things. And I thought, this is interesting. This is something I have, you know, we don't always see that often. And, you know, you invest in and around London, some, you know, something that again, I think can seem quite, I don't know, scary or can, you know, it has a high barrier to entry financially, but hopefully today we can maybe break this down and provide people some insight into like really what it's like investing in these areas. But before we get to all the awesome interior designs that you were doing, and of course people will go to your Instagram later and they'll check it out. What were you doing before property? Um, so before property, my sort of educational background is I did economics. So I've always really been a numbers man. I think one thing about doing economics is it kind of gives you a base point to almost get involved in any conversation um, just because that's that's the nature of, of the degree. And then it just really yeah, makes you interested in the numbers and being at the numbers always always seem quite attractive in property. I think that's what drew me towards it. Um, away from that, I worked in sales for a little while after graduating. I worked in finance for as long as I could manage it, which was just under five months, I believe. <laughs> so you, you um, really stuck it out there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm committed, of course. <laughs> 
it was, you know, I, I actually, I'm like, I proper loved economics. But as soon as I started working in finance, it wasn't economics. It was just, okay, there's a slightly transferable skill set here, but it wasn't what I'd studied and really enjoyed. Um, away from that, I actually had a slightly different path to actually getting into property. And um, I'd always sort of run mini businesses um, from sort of, sort of setting up a leafleting business very young um, to moving into Shisha. So I identified after the smoking ban that there was all of these nightclubs um, and pubs and bars in central London that because of the smoking ban had made these really big, nice outdoor smoking areas. Um, but there was a sort of gap in the market. There was these nice areas, but there wasn't Shisha there. So I'd effectively approach them and say, look, do you know what? I will do Shisha in your venue. And the way I approached them was to say, I'll do it for free. Um, but in actual fact, it meant I had no overheads with them beyond staffing costs and my shisha costs and then started doing shisha in these venues and charging the consumer directly. It worked for them because they just had an extra marketing tool to say, look, we've got shisha. Um, and I don't know if people know, but shisha's got amazing margins. Yeah, it's so, so expensive, man. Like to do one. Of wow. Yeah. So I think the markups in terms of the numbers on shisha is a thousand percent markup on cost. <laughs> Um, but that's that's in London, I think. Maybe outside of London, it's probably about seven hundred percent. But still, amazing. Like it, you know, it smashes like alcohol and food, which are normally a good markups out of the water. So, I did that for a little while. Um, then approached some festivals like V Festival and the Overnight Festivals, and set up like shisha tents, like twenty four hour shisha tents in these um, festival events that were amazing. Because you think you've got sort of forty thousand people that once the um, acts go off stage at 11 o'clock, I have nothing to do. So literally all day we were semi-busy. And then throughout the night, we were just busy all the way through. Like, so it was like sort of 72 hours worth of shisha. So it was basically no sleep, but yeah, really good from a, from a profit standpoint and really easy to get friends to work there because you just say, look, I'll get you free tickets to the festival. Yeah. <laughs> you just rotate in shifts. So that worked. Um, from there, set up a shisha slash cocktail lounge in South London, had that for about 18 months, um, which was great, but it was a real grind sort of working, yeah, really long hours. And off the back of that, piggyback to sort of get into using some of that capital to get into property. Mm. You know, I really like, and I, I guess what I took from that story was that you, you spotted an opportunity, you spotted a gap in the market, a problem that you could solve, which just happened to as well have a, have a huge markup and i think that's really important in property especially in a market like where we're currently in where maybe opportunities are maybe slightly more difficult to get hold of if someone can spot opportunities like you did there it's it's a lesson for us all i think so if we go back to your journey there like how did you i suppose we all know about property but how did you know you know after owning your own shisha place that property was a thing and it kind of could be done and how, yeah how did you really get into it so i'd seen um people around me do property um my dad um is convincing solicitor so it's like sometimes i always talk about using what you have at your disposal we've always got different pieces of the puzzle to pull things together so having that meant instantly i could get free advice on the feasibility of a, a property or from a, a lease plan perspective or from a planning permission perspective it just meant that i had some added value straight away um sort of from friends built up contacts within 
the industry just from trying to sort of enhance my own knowledge. I didn't actually do courses, but just sort of piggybacked off older other developers and effectively offered my time. So there was um, somebody that was doing developments and I sort of just, <laughs> well, to be fair, I was just hanging around like a bad smell. Um, just sort of just always there. But then I was driving. So I just, you know, started with, I'll go and just made myself useful. Okay. I'll meet the builder. I'll go and let them in. I'll go and grab that plasterboard you want, et cetera. And then just almost became, so became indirectly like a project manager. And then for the next project, basically sort of spoke about getting paid, weren't really happy with that. So said they offered me a percentage of the profit of the profitability of the deal off the back end to basically PM for free on the basis that if it makes money, um, I'll get a percentage of that. And some good project management, um, you know, some fortunate stuff with the markets kind of being in the right place at the right time in that they were an, a, sort of an upward trend in market that meant it was more profitable than originally thought. So my percentages were slightly higher as well. Um, and yeah, really then used, used that experience to sort of, I quite quickly sort of, I'm an active learner. So learn while doing. So I learned while doing on the job and then learned while doing through my own projects sort of with the first project I undertook. Mm. Okay. I, you know, I like that. And I think maybe, maybe in the kind of, um, the society we're in today, maybe we've lost that element of, I don't know, hustle or kind of, mm. I think the Americans talk about it a lot. Like just one good thing they say, like giving up your sort of like time, not taking money from it because you know, what you did there was get experience that it's invaluable. Like yeah. as good as a course could be as good as having coffee with someone is, it's never as good as what you did because like you learn so much. It might come in bits here and there, but you, that that's such an epic experience to, to kind of do that. And how long did you do that for before you kind of got into it yourself? So literally I had, it was probably over about a six to nine month period. So I had, so I was just sort of unofficially working alongside them until another project started that um, beginning to end was about a six month project. But it was, I was still, I was still, um, I think I still had the, the bar at the time. So it was still very much back and forth. And it was, yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of really, really sort of, late late nights early mornings because the bar would be closing at one we'd be closing up sort of get home by 2 30 and then back on sites by sort of seven and that was for six seven days a week for for a long period so it was a grind it's not to say that you know it comes easy but i think if one thing if, if obviously you realize there's something that you want to do as much as the courses and the learning like you said can be great i don't think there you know a replacement for the for the actual activity of actually doing what you want to do <laughs> yeah i agree and again that's the kind of time frame which i suppose maybe again in society people don't necessarily want to commit to because i suppose yeah social media sometimes can make it look like you can have that in in a much shorter period of time but you have to whether it's learn, whether it's get experience like you did, you have to do something for a certain period of time before doing it yourself. So like you said there, you kind of had all these puzzle pieces, whether it was the hands-on experience, whether it was your father, how did you, you know, I suppose how, what, where, like what was your first sort of step into property? What was your first deal? I suppose. My first, my, my first deal, um, 
was a deal that I think I wouldn't probably advise other people to go this route um, just because it's a sort of high risk, high reward. So my first deal was actually a property. It wasn't an auction property, um, but it was a property that was advertised as sort of cash buyers only because of the condition um, and just sort of did the numbers and actually went for a bridging loan for my first property. So it's very much a kind of, in terms of risk and reward strategies, it's a baptism of fire to buy your first property off a bridge without um, sort of that, that much experience. It was a one bedroom flat um, that was, you know, it was good size, I think 750 square foot. So potential to, so basically how I looked at it was there was the potential to make it a two bedroom just from playing around with layouts and stuff online. Um, and in the area, particularly in London, you know, the, the addition of an additional bedroom, you're probably looking on average sort of if, if, per, if purchase price is around sort of 250, 300,000, adding an additional bedroom without even the uplift from the works is probably an extra 40,000 pounds. So margin wise, it makes sense if you can achieve it. And much like the the discussion around the Shisha business, my business model has always been around, okay, so how can I identify an opportunity um, that can make money from the offset as opposed to just doing the same thing that everybody else was doing. So that was kind of my first deal. Um, So it was a one bedroom flat in Sydenham. Numbers wise, um, I don't remember everything exactly. It's probably about six, seven years ago now, but um, it went despite the high finance costs um, got, you know, those are sort of different lessons as you know, sort of fell out of a couple of contractors across the way, learned, you know, the importance of sort of not just trusting everybody's word off the bat and sort of literally, so project managing sort of very, um, very tightly. And yeah, I think it was about from sort of purchase to sale, I think it was about a seven to eight month period. And although there were sort of some, some hiccups along the way, it actually went relatively smoothly. Mm. And you funded that yourself alongside the bridging. So, yeah, so I funded that alongside the bridging. And, you know, when you took out the bridging loan, I mean, look, I think it, it, it gets a bad rep. Obviously, it has risks. You know, I mean, we all have mortgages, so it's almost the same risk, arguably, maybe a bit um, more. Like, were you aware of, you know, the kind of cost and the risk? Was it all factored in or was it just like, well, I need to buy a deal, so I'm going to just do it anyway? Yeah, I think maybe in hindsight, I didn't fully understand the attitudes towards bridges when it comes to if you don't meet their timescales. But definitely I think my sort of my finance slash economics background really helped in, you know, factoring in the numbers and putting it in the spreadsheet. And one thing that I've taken from there and it's just been repeated throughout my journey has been, you know, do the numbers work. And if the numbers work and they're sort of from quite early on have always been um, sort of quite prudent when it comes to numbers and quite conservative, sort of stress testing numbers from an early stage to say, okay, what if it takes me an extra three months and I have three months more of finance? What if um, the bill cost goes up by 10%? What if the sales go down by, the sales price go down by 10%? So really stress testing the deal prior to going ahead. I think personally, bridging finance, and I hear a lot of brokers say this, bridging finance is only risky if you don't do your numbers correctly. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I mean, and or if there's a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, away from, yeah, sort of, quote, quote, act of God, 
um, you know, I think bridging finance is is just as sensible and just as fit for purpose as any other source of finance, as long as you've done your due diligence on your numbers and, you know, what, what potential risk you're exposing yourself to. Yeah. And I think the kind of uh, maybe, maybe misconception about it being expensive is, I suppose the kind of other question is, well, two questions are, well, what other choice do you have? If you have another choice that's better, go use it. If you don't, is bridging finance more expensive than not doing a deal? So it never is. That, that's that's the thing. Yeah. If you've done your numbers correctly, I'll be honest with you, where I've made the most money, I've paid the most on finance. And the rationale behind that was a lot of the time, the best deals, you need to make a decision on the spot. You need to offer great terms to make sure, because if anybody else sees that deal, they're going to take it away from you, or you're going to get to a bit more and erode your profits. So sometimes people, you know, they want to delay and they want to try and get a much cheaper source of finance. And you might save £10,000 on your finance. But if somebody comes in and gazumps you for £20,000, you're already £10,000 worse off. So I think it's a case of fit for purpose. Yeah. That's a really good point there, actually. I think, especially when you're, I mean, like I'm having it now. So when I'm moving from kind of smaller deals to bigger mm. deals, the cost of finance is, I mean, the rate is it's lower actually, but you mm. know, it's almost the same. But when I look at how much it costs, I suppose I don't, I don't really, I mean, it's in a spreadsheet. It's there. It's absolutely considered, but it's not something I argue with, you know, as in it's like, it's- well, that's the cost. It's a cost. It's like paying your stamp duty. I mean, if we could not pay it, we'd love to not pay it. Yeah. It's, it's just a cost of doing business. And it's like importing goods from overseas. You have to pay your tax for them to come in. You can't say, oh, I'm, I'm going to stop now because the, the, it's too high. As long as the business is still profitable, you'll pay for those goods. I mean, don't get me wrong. If there's a next best alternative or something cheaper, then obviously explore it. But you can't just be angry at a bridger for wanting to make money because that's what they do. And they're facilitating your ability to make money as well. They're providing a service in the same way that a good builder provides a service. And, you know, everything is a cost that allows you to bring a piece of the puzzle together to make money in the long term. Mm, I like that. And, you know, if anyone like if, if any of us were bridgers, we'd absolutely have the same terms. We'd probably want we'd, we'd probably love to be term. bridges. Yeah. <laughs> We would love to be bridges, you know, like sort of them making sort of 10% just off their money, off not doing every, anything and having all of their risk protected. First charge, I'm debentures, sh- personal I'm, guarantees, everything. Yeah. Listen, I'm sure if, for example, we did some massive deals and made a load of money and we were, you know, sitting on eight figures and we could just have an option to say, do you know what? I've loved property for a while, but I can sit back and just make off my 10 million pounds. I can make a million a year relative with relatively low risk done and not do any of the work. And I could live in Bali, you know, you know, <laughs> live in Bali in a nice three bedroom beachfront villa where my meals cost me two pounds a day. And I'm not even <laughs> going to spend half of my million that I make a year. I mean, do you know what I mean? It's, it's great business, but at the same time, it facilitates us doing great business. And I think it's just, yeah, it's a service you pay for convenience as well. Because mm. don't get me wrong, you know, there's there's different finance options. I mean, we love um, raising pr- private, private, private investor finance, and that's great. And to be honest, I would much rather give an individual that either maybe know or have built a relationship that 5%, 6%, 7%, whatever the percent may be, because rather than sort of a, a faceless company, however, if, you know, it means 
it getting the deal across the line quicker and making sure that I, I and you make money in the long term. I have sort of no issue with, with bridges because I just said earlier, it's just literally a cost of doing business. I hundred percent agree. And I've, I've done it before where we had a 14 day completion or I offered it. And then they were like, yeah, we accept. And I was like, Oh shit. Um, and the bridges came through in like 10 days. So mm-hmm. big up, big up together finance, little plug there. Um, hey. for, coming through, <laughs> for coming through twice there. Um, so you know what? I think just to round up on the bridging, do you find, cause I'm finding this, maybe, maybe it's the current market. Maybe it's, you know, who knows, but I'm finding that when you use finance, even if it's investor finance at a good rate um, for both parties, that generally as investors, we are kind of, I want to say bottom of the barrel. What I mean by that is you've got homeowners who will offer unlimited amounts to an extent. You've got builders who will kind of offer higher because they can do it at cost or they just want to keep their lads busy. You've then got investors who don't do BRR or don't want to make 25% profit. They're happy with seven. And then you've got us who need, you know, minimum 20, 25%, whatever it is. And we have 40k of finance costs, meaning that our offer is the lowest. Do you find that when you're doing business? Um, so yeah, I mean, it is hard. I think it is getting increasingly harder in this current climate to find a deal just because we're in a very strange place in that. The market, we're all aware there's loads of factors that are potentially going to depress the market in the future. However, sort of the concept of economics is kind of trickle down economics. Nobody really, consumer confidence doesn't dip and the market doesn't change until your sort of average Joe fills it in their pocket. So we're in a place where the market is sort of artificially maybe inflated through the stamp duty holiday, through bounce back loans and a lot of money floating around that people potentially have invested. Also the fact that there's a stop on um, evictions there's a stop or, I mean, there's the, the um, mortgage holiday and things like that. So I feel the market is in a funny place Whereas investors. We're trying to be quite conservative for our offers because we know that it's going to go somewhere maybe, you know, slightly, slightly strange in the future. Um, however, I think it is just a case of as an experienced investor, being able to identify opportunities there are to add value and also utilizing our expertise to be able to see what other people's other people miss. And I think that's my main sort of takeaway when it comes to finding a deal. If the deal was obvious that, you know, average Joe person that's buying it as their first time home or even the other investor that is their first deal, everybody's going to see it. And so the profits are going to be eroded out of the deal. And like I see yourself when you're going and you do loads of viewings and yeah, credit to you because I struggle to do that many viewings, but um, you do loads of viewings and see loads of properties and you can quickly identify, you know, based on my experience, chances are that's not subsidence. That's not 40K worth of damage. That might just be that, you know, that something wasn't installed correctly or, you know, that damp isn't a massive issue. I can see that it's the downpipe that's leaking on the side of the building. It's not rising damp. and I don't have to tank half the building, for example. Mm. So I think a lot of the time, although it is getting harder, us being able to sort of utilize experience to just add value and not expect people to put deals on a plate for us. Yeah. It's kind of what can allow us to maybe sort of work in a more difficult market. Yeah. I like that. That that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, so if we go back to your story, after that first deal, you know, like you said, it went fairly straightforward. 
it, you know, it was a success. I, I suppose, you know, what kind of happened after that? How did you progress onto your, your other deals? So, I mean, the reason, so, so I do, I do flips in London. So I don't generally, I mean, now I've built, built a portfolio, um, but it wasn't kind of an intended portfolio. My portfolio was built off the basis of I do a deal. You give me the money I want for it, or I might keep it because, you know, London property prices, despite the fact that there can be little dips, generally speaking, they're very safe because it's such a high demand area, like anywhere like New York, like Paris, like parts of LA, there's just such high demand that even as markets are maybe quite slow in other areas, they generally, generally sort of a very much of an upward trend. So I will keep a few properties. Um, but my markets flips in that I don't have unlimited capital as much as I would like to. So for me to be able to go and do more deals and bigger and better deals, I have to take the money out to be able to go again. So that's literally a case of once I work out something that works, I don't see the need to reinvent the wheel. So for the next maybe 10 to 15 deals, they were all basically the same thing. Buying one bedroom flats that I made sure, you know, the freeholder was a private individual, not a big firm that was going to charge me an arm and a leg for my license to alter agreements that could be converted to two bedroom flats without the requirement for, um, for planning or not without the requirement for extensions or loft conversions, et cetera, um, or a two bedroom flat to a three bed. But the best margins were generally from a one to a two or from a studio to a one. So just repeated doing the same thing. Um, went from doing maybe a deal in a year to two or three and just kind of built up a pipeline of deals like that original that was my first steps and then went on from there to do conversions um, which you know buying single units and converting them into flats um, and stuff that needed more work so loft uh, so stuff with loft conversions extensions um, and since then I've done one new build as well interesting so let's talk about that that flats kind of strategy because i've seen um i've seen a few other people doing this as well and, and talking about it i mean i suppose if any if people are interested in doing that um is it still a valid strategy and maybe talk us through how you find it and what you're the kind of key things you're looking for so i mean for me that that is my favorite strategy at the moment um because one reason i love it is the option for potentially multiple exits, um, which can allow you to mitigate your risk. I, if you're buying, you know, a rundown property that needs work, your plan A, worst case scenario, a lot of the time can be okay. If I don't get my plan in, worst case, I'll refurb it as a house and potentially you know, have a very small loss or break even or a small profit, but as plan A. So it means that you're kind of insulated from risk from day one. All your potential loss would be is your time and your sort of your obviously not making money off your money for a period um but then you can have different planning schemes so depending on the size of the property it may be two three four five however many flats the property can sort of contain and um, based on its size and its features so one thing when converting a, a a single dwelling into flats is just making sure you know the area in which you're working in 
So again, I, I work in South London, um, but again, every council's different. Every council has a different attitude towards conversions and planning as a whole. And also, even though they work off an overriding sort of planning guideline, they all have different requirements. One council may be like, we want all of our flats to have balconies. Some may say the complete opposite. We hate balconies. We want them all to look like the house next door. <laughs> so it's knowing the area you work in. Um, so I really focus on some particular areas that I know have quite a positive attitude towards conversions and creating more sort of affordable housing within the areas. And then with planning, it's very much a case of just ticking the boxes. So what do they want? What do they want for amenity space? What size gardens do they want per flat? Do they require parking spaces for all flats or is it flats of a certain size? If you're you know, converting a house of a three-bedroom house, are they saying you have to keep an existing three-bedroom to maintain like a family unit um, and just various different factors that making sure when you're looking at a property, it does tick all those boxes, you know, you're most likely to achieve planning. Um, Originally, a lot of people are a bit more daunted because there's obviously a lot more involved structurally and a lot more requirements when it comes to converting to flats so you have to like do stuff like past it passing sound testing various risk assessments um you know and there's a lot more involved but in actual fact once you know you've got a good build team because of the size of the project you can afford to have a real sort of project manager and sort of site foreman, which takes off the day-to-day running around if you do self-manage, which I do for smaller projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you enjoy the design element, you can really come in a lot more at your second fixed stage. And, you know, like sometimes I think you can get beaten down by a project in that if you've been in the mud from day one, by the time you're getting to this, you're picking, you know, the location of your sockets or the color of your paint or your kitchen. You're kind of, you just want to get out because you've been so stressed out by it that, um, you know, you, you, you can lose motivation sometimes, which I think is a good thing about getting onto larger projects because you can afford that project manager. You can get in at the fun stage. <laughs> I like that. That's, yeah, I think that that's kind of common, the, the kind of pre, pre-swag burnout. And then you get to that stage and you're like, oh, just get it over with. You had, you had these amazing mood boards at the beginning yeah. and stuff <laughs> from Pinterest. And you were going to try this brand new bathroom and this, this look and this feel. But you've had so much back and forth with your contractors that even the idea of asking them to get the, the tap to come out of the wall of the bath, you're just thinking, Do you know what, just, just put the tap where you want and let's just get <laughs> So I just think that... Me, yeah. Exactly. That is a a good side of them. Numbers wise, I mean, they they can be amazing. I've had some amazing deals with conversions. Again, some of them to get them across the line have had really high finance costs. But again, it's um, a case of because there's potential high, high rewards, often there's more risk involved. Are you offering um, asking price on these usually because you're adding so much value or? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, from from being the savvy businessmen we are to i mean do we offer asking do we do we go out there saying we offer asking price and everything (laughs) no we don't however um you know it's just a case of how good is the deal because i mean sometimes you know like you could maybe get five percent off the price but if that means again that you may end up losing out on the property if the numbers are great why not just pay asking price to get the deal done 
like if, if it means making sure that you secure that property, I think it really all, um, again, economics background, numbers nerd, I get into my spreadsheet and I do what my spreadsheet tells me to do. If my spreadsheet tells me to offer asking price, I offer asking price. If the spreadsheet says, you know what, we, we have to offer a lot less, then I offer a lot less. I think one thing that obviously benefits us from being investors is we don't have that emotional attachment to properties. Mm-hmm. So if there are a lot of similar properties, we can go and view 10 and offer below asking on all 10 and we might get nine rude no's and one person that comes back and says, can you come up five grand and it's a deal? Yeah. So we don't have that emotional attachment. So we don't necessarily have to offer asking, but I don't think, I think sometimes as developers, we're so attracted to the word a deal. Mm. If we're not getting it below asking, we forget the fact that it's a deal. Sometimes people advertise stuff at a very, you know, motivated set of price and we should just say, yeah, thanks. That's a great price. Let's get this deal done rather than always trying to get a deal and negotiate and then potentially sort of, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've offered slightly above ask. I mean, the asking price was, was very low. Like it was one of those, like, obviously no one's going to like, everyone's offering kind of at asking or above. It still got rejected, but at the end of the day, I did what you said, which was, what does the spreadsheet say? Does it still make the profit margin? Yes, it does. So, you know, we're going to offer it. It doesn't matter if it's above, below, whatever. It deals a deal, like you said there. So when you're looking for these kind of projects, you know, is there a kind of typical house? Is there a kind of size? Like what clues? Um, I suppose when you walk into a house, it's hard to imagine sometimes it being flats. So sort of a few things is, um, again, so just looking at the house from outside, I always look at when you look at the front of a building for it to get, depends on how many flats you need as well. But typically, you know, the, there's not margins in converting a house to two flats a lot of the time because of the work that's required. Um, generally speaking, you need to get three or four units for it to make sense unless it's either at a really good price or sometimes in a really prime location where, you know, flat prices are ridiculous. So it does make sense. And the price really just dwarfs the build costs. Um, so one thing, when you're looking at a building from the front of the building, a little really nice key indicator is the second window. How wide is that second window? Because if it's like a tiny window, just even if a house looks big, it's probably not going to be the right size. Because I, sometimes I look at houses and I think, how can this house not be massive? Like They've done a great job with this fisheye lens on Rightmove. Um <laughs> But yeah, so looking at that second window is a good indicator of the size of the house. Um, then obviously size-wise, you know, for generally speaking, for planning um, above, you know, 130 square meters plus um, in its original states so and not including extensions, for it to tick the boxes for planning, uh, making sure that you've got terrace houses don't work as well unless they're really big because generally you want to have access to the garden for all flats which means you have to have an internal corridor so you lose a lot of floor space so end of terrace um, but ideally semi-detached detached are great obviously there's new planning laws of detached which means you can do a lot more however because of that they command a massive premium so my typical house is normally a semi-detached of a good size um, decent sized driveway decent sized garden um, and sort of the head height to be able to extend into the loft. Mm, interesting. And when it comes to, you know, before, if we jump back to what you first did, so which might be more, I don't know, might, might be kind of a, a nicer entry, I suppose, for people mm-hmm. who, are, who are newer, although what you just said is a really fantastic strategy. 
you were converting the one bed into twos or, you know, you were kind of doing the getting a flat and converting it into a bigger and better flat. Um, why, why does that work so well? And I suppose if you have any figures of a previous deal to support that, that would be awesome. Yeah. Let me, let me just go, go into the, the archives and pull one up quickly. Um, but yeah, in terms of why it works so well in London, it's just the basic difference in uplift what a one bed is worth versus what a two bed is worth. So if we're in an area, um, I don't know, I'll take somewhere in South London, like Sydenham, if a one bed is worth, depending on the road, somewhere between 275 to um, 360, a two bed is maybe worth 350 to 450, depending on the road, et cetera. So that instant difference in value, um, you know, is so massive that, if if it works as a reasonable layout, there's you, you've added instant added value to the property, and um, because you've seen something in in terms of its potential that other people may have missed. Mm. Um, so I'm just going to pull up. So I suppose it, you know, therefore it, it only works in certain areas. If you try and do it in the north or other parts, it may not provide yeah, the same uplift. Because right? if again, it's it's all about your cost versus your uplift, and although. You know, when looking at numbers and build costs, they, they seem to be, I haven't operated outside of London, but when I'm talking to people, people's build costs do seem to be slightly lower. Also, because of end property values, maybe material costs are lower because of, of you know, with the types of materials we can justify using because of end values. Um, but if you're not going to get that same level of uplift, but the build costs are the same, it wouldn't necessarily work um, everywhere. And I see it's a lot more popular, but it, like, there's a lot more stock available in the north of maybe houses in a bad condition to add value to. Yes. Um, and I think that's from, from what I see anyway, that seems to be a much more popular strategy than the, than, than, you know, than the convert, the conversion of, or the refurbishment of flats. Yeah. But one thing, even when doing it in London, um, when I'm doing a similar to, so I have done, you know, house just refurbishments, what I tend to focus on is, particularly areas that are maybe areas on the cusp of going up in value, buying properties that work great as a refurbishment for now from a sort of um, buy, um, refurbish, refinance and rent option, but then also potentially that even though they don't work now numbers-wise to convert, in the future as an asset I'm going to retain, I could potentially um, you know, convert them as and when property values go up. Mm. Okay. And... You know, I suppose a question about these kind of deals is, is, is this a strategy that you think a lot of people are doing? Like, you know, when you were doing it, did you find it was quite, you know, stiff competition for kind of one beds or anything that could be converted or was it kind of maybe not so realized? I think the competition is high, but not necessarily from other developers. So the competition is high just because a one bedroom flat is, you know, is your starter flat. So if an owner occupier falls in love with the property, they don't mind if they're not adding value. They just want that as their home. So they're not that concerned. But again, I think I sort of say this, but it's about seeing what other people have missed. So sometimes some of my best deals, like something I've just purchased um, this year, was actually on the market for six months prior to me buying it. Mm-hmm. And it was just a case of actually seeing some potential that other people have missed in it. So I think in anything in property, it's about adding that value. 
And even when that comes to getting into property in the first place, if somebody wants to have a conversation with you and they get into your DMs, I'm sure a lot of the time you might give out free bits of information and what have you. But obviously, so many people approach you that you can't do that all the time. But if somebody approaches you to add value straight away in that conversation, then you're a lot more likely to reciprocate and they're going to get more from you and vice versa. And I think it's the same with properties. If you can add that value from the offset, you're going to get a lot more from the deal. Mm. I like that. Have you found your case study, your figures? Yes, I'm just, you know what it is? I've, I've gone to my, my costing and project management. But I've got like five different versions. So I'm actually just trying to find a version. That's the finalized. <laughs> Correct. I'm taking a second. I suppose that this is a kind of, you know, it's a starter flat for people who want to live in it. But maybe it's also a starter strategy for people wanting to invest in London, especially if you get a one bed in a, in maybe a rough condition like you, you you might lose some money, but you may just lose time if it doesn't convert or if there's an issue. So yeah, I think it seems lower risk than, you know, converting a house into three or four flats, I think. Yeah, no, definitely. It's much, it's much lower risk because you don't have, and I would expect more money for more risk because you want the planning gain yeah. of um, CD. So where we were talking about trying to make 20, 25% before, if I'm taking further risk um, that I'd want to sort of be making 30 to 35% as a minimum, because I'm taking that additional risk. And just like bridges are, if you're a more risky client, they're going to charge you more. Mm. If the deal's more risky, I would expect it to pay me more. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so in terms of numbers, I'm looking at a flat in uh, Thornton Heath, Mm -hmm. which is sort of, um, Croydon, if again, for everyone that's not familiar with South London, sort of Croydon way, but very much deep south on the borders of um, South London and Surrey. So this was a property, it was in a very bad condition, um, bought as a one bedroom flat for 170000 mm-hmm. Um Works wise, our sort of estimated refurb of the flat was 30000 Um Finance costs, stamp duty, etc. We were basically looking at a Gross development value of, oh, sorry, gross development costs of 211000 and a forecasted sale price of 250000 over a six-month period. So in terms of um, profit on cost, it would be 18% and profits sort of on the gross development value would be 15%. So again, the numbers weren't what I would look at now potentially, but I think, and also they weren't, they were quite, um, you know, using quite sort of low base numbers on what it could potentially sell for. But I do think, you know, if you're prudent with your sales numbers, you can do a deal just to gain that experience. Because I know a lot of people like yourself, you know, offer like, um, you know, they could potentially, you know, offer funding, but with the option to learn while they're doing it. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes taking a deal with a lower profit percentage may be worthwhile, as long as you've done your numbers correctly, like don't do a deal where you've kind of made up the numbers, but as long as you've done the numbers correctly, you can do a deal with lower potential returns because what you're going to learn through doing that deal, as long as it's relatively safe is invaluable. I agree with you. And I was just, that literally was going to be my next question. I have and am, you know, taking a slightly lower percentage on the first, let's say, new build I do, on the first, mm-hmm. you know, bigger flip that I do, on the first extension I do, because, like you said, it's going to be such a learning experience mm-hmm. that, yeah, of course it has to make money and you can't bodge the figures, but 
really what I get from it is going to be worth 10 times that profit on the next Uh deal and the deal after. So I think, yeah, you have to be rigid with what you're looking for, but at the same time, you got to flex it, especially if it's from an estate agent who you can see get multiple deals like this. Exactly, because relationships, if if you make 10% off one deal, but then it's about repeat business. If they come back to you because you perform, if you're selling it or if you're renting it, you give it back to the same agent, you build a relationship, you know, that you're going to you're going to have a lot more long-term profits from from that initial investment and that initial that initial 10% is going to multiply and even with this deal i mean like i said i used the numbers of hoping to sell for 250 i ended up spending an extra um i think it was about 10,000 i think i bought the garden off the downstairs flat because they didn't use it, didn't really care about the garden and it was shared. So bought it as an exclusive garden. Um, so my costs went up by 10,000, but I ended up selling it for 305,000. So that sort of um, ROI went up to 44%. <laughs> wow. Well then, I think, and that's, I but guess. It, it's a case of just being, you, know, you work on worst case scenario, but a lot of the time, particularly in London, again, it's, it's, it's a very much kind of London feature. It's it, well, a luxury of being in London, but long-term our prices, you know, every, everything I've bought has gone up in value. And there's, when I look at stuff that I didn't buy, like I kick myself now for not buying it based on what they're worth. Some stuff, a lot of stuff that I said, oh, that's too expensive. But it was particularly for stuff like conversions or stuff that I potentially hold for the longer term. There's one property that every day I drive past it, it makes me sick. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The curse of being a property developer. So with with these let's finish off on these on these um let's okay let's say you got one bed flat you want to make it into two am i right in saying the kitchen becomes the bedroom and then the lounge has a lounge and kitchen in generally uh, um so there's there's different options i do a few things sometimes to be and, and the other thing is it doesn't always have to become a two bed sometimes the layout's just ugly like you know now the idea of walking through your kitchen to get to the bathroom that people just don't like that. Mm. So if you can shift things a little bit, so I just did one for a client where we moved that around when they've had their surveyors come back in for their new mortgage valuation, values have shot up. We haven't added any extra bedrooms. We've just done a refurb, but made the layout a lot more appealing aesthetically. It doesn't always have to be that, but um, a lot of the time people will go for the new build look, which is your open plan kitchen, living room in maybe. So maybe put the kitchen into the lounge and the old kitchen becomes a second bedroom. Um, but there are loads of different ways. And it's just a case of having a play around with layouts. A lot of the time you can do that yourself, or if you're not that comfortable with it, you can employ, you know, an architect or a very even junior architect, somebody that's, or even somebody that's at university that wants to get into property and you can leverage their skills because it's just a case of kind of playing around with a floor plan. But you need to remember as well that kitchens and bathrooms don't require natural lights. So sometimes sort of getting them placed in the middle of the building between the bedrooms and between um, the living rooms that, you know, have access to the windows means that you can sort of rejig the layout and still keep an actual separate kitchen, but just have a slightly better layout. Mm, that makes sense. I like that. And earlier on, you said you've done a new build. Talk to me about mm-hmm. that. Um, so new build was just literally bought a um, bungalow um basically not the bungalow down originally we were going to go in for planning to just add an additional floor but it made sense when talking to the builders that it was going to cost if anything more to refurbish it 
and to just do extensions. So it was just a, yeah, it was effectively just a flip, not, uh, not down a bungalow and build a four bedroom house. Wow. Um, experience wise, much more, it's like, I think I'm going to get to a stage where I'm going to be wrong, but it's like the bigger projects you do, the easier they are, as long as you have the right builders, because, you know, the sort of one, one to two bedroom, um, conversions you've got you've got a lot of different factors you've got to get your license to alter from your freeholder who depending on who they are could sort of hold you to ransom if they think you're going to make loads of money they want some of your money um you've then got your working in close proximity to your neighbor um you're kind of having to squeeze something into a space that maybe it wasn't designed for so you have a lot of you have a smaller margins and a lot of what ifs like because you have to open up a lot of walls and move a lot of different stuff around as you get into the conversions although it's still a lot of work within the property because the margins are higher you can afford for those what ifs to come up and almost prepare for them as an eventuality and you can also have more support from either a project manager or a site foreman that's going to take on a lot of the day-to-day responsibilities for you when you get into the new builds it's for the builders it's just like ikea they just okay foundations walls go up everything's just going in place you're not rejigging anything nothing's coming up that's what beyond sort of your ground surveys and your drainage nothing comes up that's unexpected so it's really a lot more straightforward from sort of processing mm. i suppose it's, it's a blank slate isn't it? it's not having to deal with oh this wall's coming off this plaster's Ooh. old this pipes it's just let's let's build it like like, yeah, like, like IKEA, like, yeah. literally like IKEA. okay shell's gone up okay great next stage i mean all your timbers your roof's gone on and then but you've, you've pretty much got a show. You've got a house. Let's do your plumbing. Let's do your electrics. But there's there's not loads to it, especially. Mm. Yes, I think, and that's that's what big. When I have conversations with, I've had conversations with sort of you know larger scale developers, people doing schemes of maybe ten, fifteen houses on a plot, and yeah, like if you're going high end, the interior, getting the interior design right, if that's not what you have an eye for, can be a lot more difficult because of the type of finish that you're doing, but the actual, you know, shell and the build out is a lot more straightforward. And there's also almost a lot more people work off, you know, more standardized metrics in terms of plastering is this per square meter. Um, you know, your, your, your shell is, or your just your build out is this per square meter painting is this per square meter. Whereas when you're doing smaller scale projects, it's a lot more back and forth of, can you do it for this? What about this? But I don't cover this. This guy doesn't do that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. A lot of people who've done various strategies or approaches like you have, have said this about new builds. They've said, you know, yeah, buy to let or flip stuff. They're great, you know, but new builds are so much cleaner and mm. clearer. And, and maybe even the builders who do new builds, well, hopefully are a different breed to those who do flips and refurbs. Although that's, that kind of leads me to my next question, which is you've said a few times about the right build team or the right contractors. Now this is something that every property investor has had, has got scars from, right? If you've been in property for more than a few months, you're going to have some sort of scars from some sort of builder somewhere along the way. Um, if you haven't yet, it's coming. 
<laughs> Sorry to come. Yeah, just pre 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 warned it is yeah, coming. Yeah, just put a bit of voodoo there, but it is it is coming. Um, because you know, how do you how how have you found good build found and kept good builders? So I've yeah I've been so you know like you said I've I've had my share of bad builders, but I think particularly because I project manage, I will quickly notice a builder that doesn't know everything or isn't doing stuff correctly and i think that's one of the benefits away from obviously not having as much time of actually self-project managing i can quickly identify you're not right for this project let's just part ways as however you take it but in most cases if you do it earlier on it's not as you know it's not as sour um and i think just obviously because i'm repeatedly doing projects i'm keeping people busy so when i'm their primary source of income people have a lot more responsibility towards me as opposed to somebody who's coming in and coming out and can get work everywhere. So I indirectly have maybe kept, I don't know, sort of six, seven people as initially as just contractors in direct employment for about five, six years. So their kind of responsibility towards me and making sure that they're part, they became part of the team before they were the team. After that, I then built out my own construction team. And between projects now, I actually offer my own build team as a cash flow um, to obviously cash flow my own projects. I now complete projects for other developers or owner occupiers. But in terms of initially finding that team, um, personal recommendations like can't can't speak highly enough. If somebody tells you they were great and they can you can see their work or you can see their work from a year ago and it's still great and they're still not complaining you know what I mean grab that person with both hands because you can't beat those personal recommendations if you don't have somebody within the industry already that can recommend you a builder um when you are using the portals whether it be trusted tradesmen or find my builder or rated people use those obviously you you can look at the online reviews but take them with a pinch of salt but when they've said okay they've done these projects ask you know the builders to go and see those projects they're currently working on if possible, speak to their existing clients, find out, you know, how it's going. Then also do take the time to, for you to prepare the contract with your builder. So you know exactly what's in your contract, what's expected, what your payment terms are, you know, how much did your retention for snagging for how long, at what point the final payment is, um, how you create accountability for payments, because what a lot of people will do is they will, you know, they'll start a build, and they'll just be led by the builder telling them ex- ex- effectively expecting the builder to do everything for them and not take a sort of a degree of accountability that they are your builder, but they're working for you. So you almost need to work like their manager and make sure they're delivering, you know, what you want from them. Mm, I like that. And I think the devil's in the details, right? In terms of what's in the contract, what's in the spec, what's been agreed. If something diverges from it, there's, there shouldn't be an argument. It should be, listen, go read the spec, go read what we agreed. And that's and also, for both parties. Yeah, I think like very, as much as you can have, like some people have the most fancy contracts that, you know, they're, they're 20 pages long and they say all these things that this has to be built in line with this X, Y, and Z. And there's so many things in the contract. But for me, I have like a final summary page, particularly if, for example, my builder's doing like first fix of materials. It says, me as the client will be buying tiles, bathroom suite, X, Y, Z. If it's not listed here, take it that it's not my responsibility and will be bought by the builder. Like will be bought by my main contractor. Because those, it, 
just black and white things. And the builder can do the same thing for you. The builder, I would tell the builder, look, if there's anything you're not supplying, tell me in black and white. So I know, and we can make sure because who, who wants, like, especially if you've got a good builder, who wants to fall out over, you know, for some reason, have you ever found that when people are doing your electrics, there's, a, it's just the idea of who buys the fuse board is always a, is always a sort of negotiation point. Because it's like, well, you're buying first fix electrics. Isn't the fuse board part of the first fix? That's oh, no, a pretty, that's yours. a big part of it, yeah. Exactly. But for some reason, it's like this. I could be doing a build where it's, you know, a build cost of £100,000. But for some reason, we get on a sticking point of always two things. Who buys the fuse board and who buys the tile adhesive? <laughs> They're like, I generally, I don't know if it's just, it's like a thing that's just learn at builder school that make sure you argue about those two things. <laughs> make <laughs> but, sure you prove yourself by arguing about tile adhesive, which is fairly cheap. Fuse board, uh, still fairly cheap. I mean, I mean, yeah, they're not, it's just, it's, yeah, it's not in, in comparison to everything else. They're not, but it's just a funny issue that I don't know. I've, I've just always found funny. That it's like, okay, we supply all the building materials and all the plumbing and you get the tiles, but then for some reason you want me to get the tile adhesive of all things like bearing in mind that you know i might just not have a van and a normal car and you're buying all the sand and cement and the bonding and the plaster but then i have to go and get tile adhesive (laughs) the trials and tribulations of working with builders man um you know what so for people on this podcast this is going to come out in sort of like march time i think but Mm -hmm. tonight at ppn nightsbridge you are speaking um and you're presenting a case study could you maybe compress that and just share us with us a kind of top level case study now that you're going to share with us and the figures of it so people know um yeah so people know the reward that comes from what you do you just want a sneak peek before tonight <laughs> you can act really informed when we speak about yeah, tonight, it tonight <laughs> like oh my god wow i've never seen this deal and before. i'm sure you're looking for like and i'm sure i reckon that cost about 450 i was spot on <laughs> <laughs> don't even tempt me because i will you know i know i know you as well um so yeah so um this one thing i'll just start amazing the other thing you get to do with conversions that's amazing is that if it's more than four units you get to name the build or you have an option to name the building oh that's so cool so, so you called yours is- like Tej talks palace Tej- I, I, I did but they said there's already three of them in the area uh that's, that's the other, they, other fans health yeah. and safety they said where would the firemen know to go in an emergency you know what that's that's a very good excuse and it's because my other fans have done it already you're too late but yeah fair enough. and there was no yellow as well unfortunately <laughs> so, uh, we'll work on it so yeah so this was amazingly was called khadija house after uh, my late grandmother which is amazing to be able to you know immortalize her in london which was is a great feeling to be able to do which sometimes as well these you know the, the, the smaller things you know mean more than the financial benefits as well um but to give you a rundown the property um was bought in croydon 2015 croydon's an area i really like because they had a really proactive sort of development strategy within the area um marketed for five hundred thousand, put in an offer of four hundred and fifty thousand on the basis of it uh, being a cash buyer and with completion within 28 days um and exchange in two weeks um hence that offer was accepted and we went ahead um in terms of why the property, it was price, location, the property features and multiple exit strategies. So we've touched on all of them already. I think bar location, so location is Croydon has had quite a high level of investment in infrastructure as well as a lot of development. So it just means I always follow the money. 
if people are spending loads of money in an area, chances are they know they know what they're talking about. So, you know, follow the money. And then multiple exit strategy just means that there was a number of options of what we could do with the property. So we spoke about it briefly earlier, but option A was refurbished as a family home. Um, that would have a GDV of six hundred to six hundred and fifty thousand. Um, so, you know, would still still make a small profit. Option B was to convert to two self-contained flats, one two-bed and one three-bed, uh, GDV of between 675 to 725. Option three was convert to sorry, three flats, which is a one-bed, a two-bed and a three-bed. That would have a GDV between 875,000 and 975,000. And option um, four was to convert to four self-contained flats, one two bed and three one beds, which would have a sort of GDV of between one point one million one hundred and fifty thousand and one point two five million. So they were sort of the potential options. The initial plan, um, after some discussions with the architect, or just if to be fair, actually not with discussions with the architect, just with what I decided in my head was the plan was to go for option C, which was great value for money however um you know more achievable within the term within the time frame so i wanted it to be a 12-month project sort of complete month one um three months worth of planning in hindsight optimistic six months worth of the build out and then sort of three months for legals and sales with a turnaround in 12 months now they were the plans in terms of the finance and the figures of this deal um, I raised £400,000 from private investment at 10% return over 12 months. So with the, the legal contracts that we paid for, that was approximately 41000 let's say, cost of finance over the 12 months. Um, purchase price 450 stamp duty at the time it was a lot lower than it would be now. It was 8750 8, um, budgeted 190000 for the works. So total expenses were six, just under six hundred and fifty thousand. Um, the sales price again that we targeted, we took sort of the lower end of the GDV, which was nine hundred thousand. Um, and then by the time you take into account the cost of sales, which is the estate agent fees and the cost of finance, total expenses were seven hundred and six thousand. So profits potentially would be 194000 with a return on investment of 54%. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, yeah, that was the initial plans. Um, like I said, three bed on the ground floor, two bed on the first, and then a one bedroom in the loft. Um, just made sure, you know, in terms of talking about it, ticking the boxes, there was plans to have two parking spaces, because any flat in this area that has two or more bedrooms requires a parking space, um, bike racks for all flats, bin storage, and then maintain a similar look to the rest of the buildings on the road, as well as garden access for all flats. But as, I don't know, there's loads of different sayings in regards to this, but they say everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. (laughs) And I think that kind of is the same for property. Um, So my initial plan, again, 12-month process, free flats, you know, relatively straightforward was my planning. Um, but then when I spoke to my architect and my planning consultant in more depth, we decided to go for pre-planning, mm-hmm. um, which in hindsight was a great thing to do, but it did take 
you know, you're dealing with councils. They take as long as they like. So pre-planning itself took three months. Um, We then went for full planning for the three flats. But in the pre-planning discussions, we kind of hinted at a scheme for four flats, which to be fair, they had quite a positive attitude towards. But they said we had to build certain parts of the build first. We couldn't apply for it as a single application. Hmm. So we had to build our we had to build our we had to do our loft conversion prior being able to to do that. So months seven to twelve, we worked on what was planned th- um, option three of the three flats, but simultaneously put in an application for the fourth unit, um, which we achieved. Sort of end of month twelve, we got planning, which meant we had to go back and redo a lot of the building work um, and also complete a think. Uh, four and a half by eight meter rear extension. Um, add that on, sort of reconfigure a lot of thing, make a few changes. So I had sort of a further five months worth of work taking us to month 18. Um, then the sales took slightly longer. So sales and legals through a, for a number of different things um, took slightly longer than expected. So about six months to sell everything. Um, so at the end of basically just, just short of two years, um, we were all done, repaid the investor. Investor was still happy, you know, at sort of begin month six, we renegotiated terms to make it a um, between 18 to 24 month finance agreement. So they still got paid on the same terms as 10% per annum. Um, and yeah, that, that, that worked out quite well um, in terms of a project summary. So it was, it was great. Um, the actual return on investment. So, our own investment as opposed to what we borrowed from the private investor was 117%. Um, and the profit on cost was 54%. Um, overall, the GDV fell just short of our top end. I think if you remember, I said, we were hoping, we said the top end it could be for the four flats was, um, 1,250,000 and we did 1,225,000. Um, Total profits were three hundred and ninety thousand. Damn, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so that that's kind of the, the headline numbers on the deal. And um, one thing, sort of, in terms of key lessons learned, which I always think reflection on deals. You could just look at a deal and be like, "I've made so much money. This is great. I don't need to learn anything else." Mm-hmm. But um, one thing I highlighted, I just went through sort of. 10 things i always like to try and find 10 things that i could have done better or could learn more about going forward so pre-planning time frames is one thing that because i'm sort of because you're asking a favor from the council like excuse me can you give us a bit of help <laughs> like yeah sure but you wait as long as we say <laughs> so that's one thing i learned from them just planning delays in general you're working with somebody you have no option to go for anybody else and there's no manager to speak to because you want something from them. So just expect planning delays, like just factor in planning delays and expect them because if you don't, you're going to end up pulling your hair out. Um, also, mm. if you've got a scheme where there are multiple options, one with your contractors, two with just the way in which you build stuff out, just obviously factoring in additional works and changing plans. Um, we had some crazy stuff like there's a tram on just off the road where the development was carried out. The tram decided to crash, which meant <laughs> because the roads were blocked, apparently they, it meant they could cancel our um, TFL like permit to work on the roads for like three months. So getting in new services in 
was a massive delay. Um, had a couple structural issues that we remedied, um, but just obviously, again, lack on any viewing, just taking into account what could be. Um, extended finance costs were, for this deal, they weren't the end of the world because 10% is a good percentage um, and the investor didn't have you know, they didn't have a fix, something they need. They didn't have really fixed timeframes of when they needed that return. So they were happy with getting a return for a longer period of time. But obviously I think from one thing I learned is working into your contracts to make sure that you have a what if scenario with your investor. Um, because let's say, you know, it, it was somebody who not to say wasn't nice, but obviously they, they potentially could just really need their money. Imagine, they forced they were trying to they tried to force a sell or force something of the property through breach of contract sort of mid deal you could end up having to either sell your deal or get more expensive finance i think just making sure you have you know a kind of what if scenario within your finance contracts as well is pretty key when in, when raising um, private finance working with neighbors as well particularly for these deals you're going to be working next door to somebody you know being being a nuisance, like if we're honest, for the better part of you know the better part of a year. So just building those relationships, I saw the good and the bad of this in this deal. Had a great relationship with one neighbor. And to be fair, no, I actually, that's a lot. Had a good relationship with both neighbors. However, I think one neighbor cost me a lot of money, which is why I say it's bad. But they were actually really nice. Like honestly, they were they let us park on their driveway. You know, they you know they were there was no issues. They 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 sort of didn't really complain about much. And we got on with them. So yeah, both neighbors were nice, but one we got on so well with to the point that to get that additional unit, they had to approve our four and a half meter extension. So rather than just put the plans in and hope they did complained, we sat down with them, went for dinner to them for dinner, explained to them what we wanted to do, how it's going to add value you know, um, to the property. Also the fact that if we do it, it's for something they could potentially do. They then came back to us and said, actually, how much does it cost to build an extension? So I use my build team and I actually, we put in simultaneous plans with the neighbor that we were joined to with the party wall to both do the same extension at the same time. I built their extension at the same time for cost price, but that was what allowed us to get the four flats, which is just a kind of an example of sometimes, you know, not, being sort of too money orientated like oh, somebody wants me to do something for them let me charge them a normal premium doing it at cost is what allowed us to achieve the profits that we did in that deal and then my last thing is the tfl permits i don't really have anything to add but thanks tfl <laughs> i love that i mean amazing lessons there and like yeah i think we can be too focused on our own development and like you said maybe charging a premium we're doing this doing that but really the bigger picture is it helped yeah. you and it helped the neighbor and it all worked out. And I think we, yeah, as property investors and developers, we should, we should look at that a little bit more often. Cool. So Kazim, we have reached the end of the podcast. It's been very, very interesting. Um, last question. If you could have dinner with any three people in the world, dead or alive, who would it be? And what would you eat? Um, let me get to my food first because I really like uh, filet steak, butterfly. People are going to hate me, but I like it medium well because I do. Oh. And it's fine because it's a big steak <laughs> and I butterflied it and it's not really medium well. It's closer to medium. But if I say medium in a nice restaurant, you're going to give me it rare. So I'm going <laughs> to say medium well. And I'm going to have that with some nice potatoes. Um, sorry, mashed potato, peppercorn sauce and a Coke in a glass bottle with lemon and ice. Um, in terms of 
who I would meet and why. Um, I think on like so, I I met when I was very young my my great grandma who was a repatriated slave from Brazil. So we've got like some Brazilian names in the family. I would love to just meet some of my own family. So I'm going to say either my great grandma or my granddad who I never got to meet because he passed like when my dad was about three, but I think definitely just to learn more. I think you can't learn more than learning about yourself and where you came from. So I think I would love to meet some family that I didn't get to meet. Um, oh, this is very difficult. I mean, I'll, I'll take family if you want. I mean, because yeah, I'm sure I can't think, yeah, I think, I think for me, I think very much, you know, that's, that's who I, for me, yeah, I think I'm very much, I just love to meet my own family. I think other people are great. Like there's loads of people that inspire me, but I think in reality, yeah, I'd be glad if I said it wasn't, if it wasn't family that I'd like to meet just on both sides, just to meet, just to know, I feel you can't, I think from a personal development perspective, knowing about yourself and where you came from, particularly as being, you know, um, sort of second generation like migrants, that there's there's so much that we don't know about ourselves that I think that that sort of that experience would be invaluable. I love that. Kazim, if people want to get a hold of you, what is your Instagram tag? So Instagram is property by Kazi, all one word. I'm Kazim, but I can be Kazi or I can be Kaz. But yeah, just make sure you reach out to me and follow me on Instagram. That's pretty much the only place I am, to be fair. Like I think you mentioned at the beginning, I'm pretty new to social media. Um, been on it for about six, seven months, but really enjoying it. And yeah, I'm actually enjoying networking and being friendly. So come and be friendly. <laughs> if you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook. LinkedIn and YouTube for more great content.